Well, apparently we all need to learn how to be less white, or at least that's what we're being told, uh, according to certain courses that are available on LinkedIn. Uh, Coca-Cola certainly thinks so, because they're now mandating all of their employees to view this course, which is available in the LinkedIn Learning Center, on how to be less white. We just can't make this stuff up. Hi, everyone. I'm Jamie Dury, and welcome to another National Preview Online podcast. If you have not already done so, please subscribe to the show. It's very easy to do, regardless of which device you use. Go to either the iTunes App Store for you Apple users or the Google Play Store for you Android users and search for the NPO Podcast. In the alternative, you can download the free Podbean app in either of those two app stores. That is our hosting service, and you can subscribe to the show that way. Whichever of the three methods you choose, you will be notified whenever a new episode is uploaded, and you will be able to leave comments and make reviews. Um, I would very much like you to leave a review uh, in those play stores. The more reviews of a positive nature we get, the faster the show grows, and your comments are always welcome when we try to reply to them. If you have a question for me directly, or you want to inquire about having me as a speaker at one of your political events, please contact us directly at nationalpreviewonline at gmail.com. Yes, so this is not something you can make up. Some people may think I was speaking tongue-in-cheek, but I assure you I am not. Coca-Cola has employees train on how to be less white is the headline, according to a whistleblower. Now, I'll take some pull quotes from this article in the Epic Times by Jack Phillips. Now, I picked the Epic Times because for issues that I cover on this show, uh, they simply provide more material. Some of the other publications either poo-poo these things, or they give short shrift to it, and they don't have as much fact data. But apparently, Coca-Cola employees are now required to take training on how to be less white to combat racism, according to photos posted online by an alleged whistleblower. It's not exactly clear where the photos were captured. The images show training entitled Confronting Racism, Understanding What It Means to Be White, Challenging What It Means to Be Racist. Be less oppressive, be less arrogant, be less certain, be less defensive, be less ignorant, be more humble, listen, believe, break with apathy, break with white solidarity, are listed as means of becoming less white, according to the photos that have been posted. The the training video does not elaborate on how to achieve those things. Uh, But these are things that are posted. Another quote, in the U.S. and other Western nations, white people are socialized to feel that they are inherently superior because they are white. This is on one of the slides that is shown in these photos. Research shows that by age three to four, children understand that it is better to be white. The slide appears to conclude, try to be less white. Now, Harmeet K. Dillon, a conservative lawyer, wrote that the slides appear to show blatant racial discrimination against white people. Conservative political commentator Candace Owens called on employees to file lawsuits against the uh, corporation. She quote, quote, if a corporate company sent around a training kit instructing black people how to be less black, the world would implode and lawsuits would follow. And I think that 
Miss Owens is a thousand percent correct in that I can't even imagine somebody having the chutzpah to send out a training film trying to ask black people to be less black. That would be the height of um, idiocy and it would be uh, patently racist. And I find it no less racist when they ask people to be less white. It's ridiculous. I genuinely hope these employees sue Coca-Cola for blatant racism and discrimination. Coca-Cola issued a statement on its website about the photos and attempted to distance itself from the material. The video and images attributed to a Coca-Cola training film are not part of the company's learning curriculum, reads a statement from the company titled Statement on the Coca-Cola Company Diversity and Equity Inclusion Training. The Atlanta-based firm added, our Better Together Global Training is part of a learning plan to help build an inclusive workplace. It is compromised of a number of short vignettes, each a few minutes long. The training includes access to the LinkedIn learning platform on a variety of topics, including on diversity, equity, inclusion. The video in question was accessible on the LinkedIn learning platform, but was not part of the company's curriculum. Well, how did everybody come to have to watch it. This is what I want to know. I don't think I'm ready to give Coca-Cola a pass on this. Uh, According to this whistleblower, and I assume that name will come to the fore, Carlin Borisenko, we talked about this the other day. I want to see what they have to say. But now it's it's coming out, and it's not just um, a passing thing. It's mainstream. Unless you think this is just uh, restricted to corporate America and other companies. Not so. Not so at all. This is interesting. White privilege survey in New York City school with almost no white students. Now, you heard that right. The school is the life sciences secondary school. Now, they apparently have very few white students. And a city councilman, Joseph Borelli, is calling into question why they have this white privilege exercise, which was first post uh, published in the New York Post. What could even be the purpose of this in a school that has so few white students, he asked. According to the Post, is it to inflame tensions and single out? Given the school's abominable test and college readiness scores, perhaps the chancellor should be concerned that they are not teaching enough math and English. The New York City school system continues to dig itself deeper into controversy over its racial equity training initiatives that have been underway since the arrival of Richard Carranza as school's chancellor. These programs have been shown to be focusing on disdain, disdain for whiteness, liberating students and families from white privilege and using a battle cry of disrupt and dismantle to transform schools under the banner of racial equity. Now, I can verify this to a degree because, as I mentioned on a show a few weeks ago, my son goes to New York City schools and I had the occasion to listen to a lot of the drivel that's being taught by his teachers. And he goes to what is considered a very good school, and he's in a very good program. And during Black History Month, they've taken the opportunity to engage in what I consider to be reverse racism, trying to create white guilt, and they're portraying every manner of lowlife, uh, or people that, who I think are lowlifes, as some kind of hero because they happen to be black and came to grief 
at the hands of the police or came to grief by some other violent means. Now, there is no question that there are people who have been the victim of racism in this country, and there's no question that there have been people who have been the victim of racism at the hands of police. Nobody is perfect. Uh, Society is not perfect. Police recruit from society, so we can't expect them to be perfect. However, the people they name, like the Michael Browns of the world, Michael Brown was no innocent victim. Michael Brown was a thug. He had just finished a a strong-arm robbery in a convenience store. He was identified by that police officer, and far from him running away, hands up, don't shoot, investigations by only the state, local, and federal authorities, as I said before, indicate that he ran to the police officer's car, tried to force his way in, and tried to wrest the officer's service weapon from him, which is why when he was shot, his blood and DNA were on the inside of that police cruiser because Michael Brown was not running away. Michael Brown was a thug, and he died like a thug. And I feel badly for his parents because I know it's something uh, that every parent hates to admit. I wouldn't want to admit it if it ever came to be that my child was viewed that way, but no parent wants to hear that their child has become something the world is better off without. But that was the case of Michael Brown. But now we have these continued insanity in the public schools. Uh, Ongoing news stories have emerged, it goes on to say, over the last several months indicating that teachers and staff are being trained to favor black students over whites and Asians, in effect creating a hostile environment in schools. Councilman Borelli is just one of many city officials, school staff, and a multitude of citizens rising up in protest over the issues of white bias that became a priority for the schools in spite of serious underperforming student scores. Now look at this. Joe Borelli sent this out in a tweet. Remember, this was put up by the principal of the Life Sciences Sciences Secondary School in Manhattan, where 24% of his mid-schoolers pass state English exams. 14% pass math exams. 25% of high, high schoolers drop out. And only 36% that graduate are college ready. Now, Mr. Principal, if I knew your name, I would address you by it. But it seems to me you got a lot more shit on your plate that you need to worry about than this ridiculous white privilege thing and these exercises and how to be less white and this re- ridiculous insanity that you seem to ascribe to. Are you really kidding me? 24% of your mid-schoolers are fluent in English. They can pass English exams. Only 14% can pass math. 25% of your high school students drop out. And only 36% of those who manage to graduate in your abysmal institution are actually ready for college? Give me a break. My biggest question is, why is this guy still principal? Why isn't he doing the janitor's job somewhere, sweeping up, because that seems to be all he's qualified for. If this is the best he can come up with in numbers for his student body, he is certainly not qualified to be principal of any school. Get rid of this guy. But how well is that going to happen with this guy, Carranza, who's now the chancellor, who's a lunatic? But I'm going to have my battles with him. I'm not finished with him. But this is the type of drivel that is going on. And I mean absolute drivel. But lest we get off the topic, people are still anxious to go after Donald Trump. So let's start with some oblique references, and then we'll get to more relevant topics. 
The January 6th riots, or the storming of the Capitol, as they called it, uh, were blamed on Donald Trump by the Democrats. They ran a phony impeachment against him, which you can't do against a former president, which is why the Chief Justice of the Supreme Court refused to preside over it. And they failed. And in doing so, they presented false evidence. And here's another piece of false evidence. Evidence that they knew, but they sequestered. One Capitol Police officer by the name of Brian uh, Sicknick's, uh, Sicknick, sorry, uh, was allegedly hit on the head with a fire extinguisher and beaten to death. That was the narrative they wanted to give you. And they presented that as evidence at Trump's trial. Now, Trump's trial was not on January 6th. Trump's trial was in mid-February. A lot of information came out between January 6th and mid-February that should have caused the House Democrats, if they were interested in truth, to not go forward with this. But the mother of Capitol Police Officer Brian Sicknick said her son was not beaten with a fire extinguisher by a mob on January 6th, saying he likely suffered a stroke instead. This refutes reports from the New York Times and other outlets that had tried to claim otherwise. Quote, he wasn't hit on the head, no. We think he had a stroke, but we don't know anything for sure, Gladys Sidnick, uh, Sicknick uh, told the Daily Mail in an exclusive interview on February 22nd. We'd love to know what happened. The New York Times, CNN, and NBC updated their reports weeks after the January 6th breach to assert that Sicknick was not killed by a fire extinguisher. Originally, the Times reported, based on anonymous sources, that he was beaten to death. According to the Times' update in February, new information has emerged regarding the death of Capitol Police Officer Brian Sicknick that questions the initial cause of death provided by officials close to the Capitol Police. However, there were reports of new information emerging around his death around the same time the New York Times published its first report back on January 2nd. Now, the allegation that he was killed by a protester, as I said, was cited during the House impeachment manager's presentations and arguments that former President Donald Trump should be convicted in the Senate impeachment trial over his speech January 6th. Meanwhile, they knew at the time that it was false. Completely false. And they knew it was false when pundits and elected officials were trying to push claims that new domestic terrorism laws are needed. All to be aimed at white people. Not at Black Lives Matter, which is a terrorist organization. Not at Antifa, which is a terrorist organization. How do we know this? Because we saw these groups laying waste to the country during riots in Oregon, in Washington, in Minnesota, in New York City. And they were all called peaceful protests. Despite the looting, despite the death and destruction, peaceful protests. So when they call for new domestic terrorism laws and you have Democrats in charge, you can rest assured who those laws are going to be invoked against, and very selectively. So this is the sort of drivel that passes for spirited debate uh, in, in the Capitol. To add insult to injury, I'm going to give you a little local story. This was published in the New York Post on Sunday. Actually, no, on the 21st. 
Was that Sunday? Yeah, I think that was Sunday. Saturday in Central Park was supposed to be the next to the last day that the Woolman Skating Rink and the other rink in Central Park were going to be operated by the Trump business organization. Now, for those of you who are not in New York, not from the United States, let me give you a little story about the Woolman Skating Rink and Donald Trump. It was many, many years ago. I think Koch was still mayor. The Woolman Skating Rink had been in disrepair for years. It was not open. And this is before Trump lived in Trump Tower. He lived in a different building where he could overlook Central Park from his apartment and he could see the rink. And the city tried for six years to get this rink operational. Now, you would think the government of the city of New York, our largest, most populated city in the United States, should have the wherewithal to fix a skating rink. But despite six years, they had nothing but failure. Trump finally got tired of looking at the rink from his uh, penthouse and offered to fix it. At first, they rebuffed his offers. Finally, they relented, thinking they would get rid of him and he would embarrass them. Now, Newt Gingrich talks about this in a book he wrote about Donald Trump so that he wrote the book so people could better understand Trump. And this was a perfect example because it, it perfectly illustrates how Trump approaches challenges and problems that are put before him, which was why he was such a successful president. Once he'd been given permission, Trump self-assessed. He says, what do I know about skating rinks? I'm a builder, but what do I know about skating rinks? I don't know very much at all about skating rinks. I wonder who does. He says, Canadians, they play a lot of hockey up there. I'll bet they know a lot about skating rinks. So he instructed his staff to contact one of the top skating rink builders in Canada and flew them into New York, met with them, told them the nature of the problem, that they had the skating rink. The company says, we'll take a look. Mr. Trump, they did. They evaluated the problem, came back to Trump and said, it's a relatively simple fix. Trump did it in about three months. He had the skating rink repaired. He offered to do it out of his own pocket. The city didn't want him to do it. They wanted ownership of the rink, so they paid him back eventually. And they gave him a contract to run the rinks. And the rinks have been run to the benefit of New Yorkers all these years since. We're talking 20 or 30 years. All these years. Everyone's enjoyed the rinks. But because everybody's been on the Trump bandwagon, the idiot de Blasio decided he was going to terminate the contract. And he was supposed to close the rink this Sunday, this past Sunday. And people were terribly disappointed. There was so much pushback that he finally had to renege on that uh, early rescission of the contract and say, no, the Trump organization will run it until the end of the ice skating season. And when it's closed, we won't renew the contract. We'll find someone else, which is probably what they should have done all along if they wanted to move the Trumps out. But nobody ever said that Mayor Bill de Blasio was a smart man. He's dumb as a stump. 
twice as thick and twice as mean. But that didn't stop people from celebrating ill fortune coming to a Trump supporter. Here are these people skating around a rink that they only have through the beneficence of Donald Trump, and yet they're celebrating when a man carrying a Trump flag is tackled by security. And that's exactly what happened. A man defiantly waving a Trump 2024 flag while skating on the Trump-run ice rink, ice rink in Central Park was tackled by security. He was seen unfurling the massive red and blue flag in Woolman Rink on Saturday, a day before de Blasio was set to close it along with the park's popular Lasker Rink. Some teenager goes, you know, this is a really good finale for it to close tomorrow. A teenager who shot the footage of the flag waver can be heard saying, as another onlooker shouts, woo, as they tackled him, people were applauding, other people stole his flag. This is all on video. I want to know why the New York City Police Department isn't going out to arrest these people on criminal mischief and, or better yet, grand larceny from a person. His property stolen from a person's person, forcibly, that's grand larceny. The other thing that's very confusing to me, if the Trump family runs the rink, who are these security people employed by? I can't imagine the Trump security people would go out and tackle somebody who unfurled a flag. Or was this guy even a security guy? I think there'll be more on this story. But this is the hypocrisy. People enjoying skating at a rink only because of Trump's largesse. And when a man comes out with the Trump flag, they poo-poo it and cheer that he's knocked down and beaten by the security. Only in New York. And now lastly, we come to the hallowed institution which needs to be brought to its knees because it has gone so far afield from its intended mission that it has now become a parody of itself. The U.S. Supreme Court is the institution to which I'm referring. The Supreme Court threw out a series of legal challenges on February 22nd to voting processes and results in several states left over from the 2020 presidential election. Now, the court offered no explanation for why it refused to hear the cases. Three justices on the court expressed their dissent not to hear one of the cases from Pennsylvania. Those three justices were Neil Gorsuch, appointed to the court by President Trump, Clarence Thomas, appointed to the court by Bush, Reagan, sorry, I think it was Reagan, and Sam Alito, appointed to the court by George W. Bush. What a sad commentary that the other two judges, particularly Judge Kavanaugh, for whom Trump went out on a limb and would not back away from his support of him, were definitely silent, Amy Coney Barrett included. January 11th, it says here, with inauguration just over a week away, the high court denied requests from the litigants, Trump, Republicans, and Trump supporters to expedite the lawsuits. 
The court, as its custom, didn't explain why it's dismissed. Now, these were lawsuits from Arizona, Georgia, Michigan, Pennsylvania, Wisconsin. Now, why is this such a terrible blight on the court? Well, because the court, from the very early days of this republic, uh, has evolved, and much of the power that it currently has is a consequence of decisions they made giving themselves power. And it's very interesting to note that while the court has over time issued decisions which have limited the power of state and local governments, they've done nothing to limit its own power. The Supreme Court has only gotten more powerful. It was, they're all supposed to be co-equal branches of government, but in the early days of the Republic, the Supreme Court was nothing short of an empty shell or a paper tiger. But that all changed in the early 1800s with the famous Marbury versus Madison decision. In that decision, John Marshall, the chief justice of the Supreme Court at the time, identified the power of judicial review, where the court reserved the right to declare legislation unconstitutional, which meant that even if legislation had been passed legally by state or federal legislatures, the court could neutralize it, could vitiate it, could eliminate it by simply declaring it unconstitutional, and in so doing, they would identify the constitutional infirmities within the legislation. That was probably the most significant decision ever made by the United States Supreme Court because it laid the groundwork for everything else they did. It gave the court the power to become almost a super legislature. Now, originally, it was only supposed to be for the purpose of declaring legislation unconstitutional. And then, as leftists began to realize over the course of this country's history that the Supreme Court was a way to govern against the will of the people, governed by judicial fiat instead of by popular or democratic republic ideals. They began to say, well, we have to interpret the Constitution. It's a living document. It's not a living document. It says what it says. This nonsense about it being a living document is the dogma implied by leftists who want to be able to manipulate and massage and twist and contort the Constitution to make it say exactly what they would like it to say so that they can get things passed that would never go down uh, with the American public. They want to ram it down people's throats because they know people would never vote for it. And so you have Howard Smith at one exasperated moment, who was the author of the Smith Act, saying, how can the Supreme Court tell me what it was I meant to say when I wrote the bill and led the fight to pass it. And this is not unusual. The Supreme Court does this, where they say, well, we think this is unconstitutional because we think this is what you meant to say. And since this is what you meant to say, that's against the Constitution. The Supreme Court's gotten a little too powerful, but they've never done anything to limit their power. So they feel they can just not hear things and uh, give no reason for it. Now, I've explained on earlier shows, earlier podcasts, that there are basically several reasons why and when the Supreme Court hears a case. Very often, the Supreme Court is reduced to being a, a court of public policy. 
So if it's a constitutional issue of the moment, the Supreme Court will hear it. If it's a big public policy decision, the Supreme Court will hear it. And the other big reason the Supreme Court hears cases, unless they just, for some reason, tickle their fancy, is because they want to bring the circuits in line. See, the federal court system is divided not only into district courts, but those district courts fall into 13 circuits. The entire 50 states are broken down into 13 circuits. And sometimes those circuit courts approach an issue from different viewpoints or vantage points and render different rulings. One circuit may be okay with it being done this way. Another circuit is okay with it being done that way. And when they get the law going all over the place in different circuits, very often that's when the Supreme Court will take a case to, quote-unquote, bring the circuits all in line so they all do things the same way, so we have a more unitary system of justice. That was cited by the dissenting judges. You recall back in uh, November, November 6th, Sam Alito, who's responsible. Every justice is responsible for a circuit. He's responsible for the circuit that the uh, state of Pennsylvania falls in. And on November 6th, three days after the election, he required that all ballots received by mail after 8 p.m. on November 3rd be segregated away from other voted ballots. That was never done. Just blew it off. And the court never bothered to hear anything. But Justice Alito, Thomas, and Gorsuch dissented from the Supreme Court's decision to not hear the appeal. And on February 2nd, Alito wrote in his dissent, joined by Gorsuch, that the case presents, quote, an important and recurring constitutional question, whether the elections or electors clauses of the United States Constitution are violated when a state court holds that a state constitutional provision overrides a state statute governing the manner in which a federal election is to be conducted. That question has divided the lower courts, and our review at this time would be greatly beneficial. Now, there was no danger in hearing this case. Joe Biden has been inaugurated. He's not going to suddenly be thrown out of office. Once he's sworn in, that's it. The only way he goes if he's, if he's impeached. He doesn't go any other way. They don't simply say, oh, do over. You got to move out, vacate uh, Pennsylvania Avenue. Trump's moving back in. No, it doesn't work that way. Thomas wrote a separate dissent expressing frustration, writing that the court, quote, failed to settle this dispute before the election and thus provide clear rules. Now we again fail to provide clear rules for future elections. So I ask you, if the Supreme Court of the United States, designed by the founders to be free from political pressure by virtue of their lifetime appointment, they don't have to run, they don't have to campaign, they don't have to listen to anyone. All they have to do is rule. So if the Supreme Court empowered as it is by its own previous decisions, giving itself powers no one ever envisioned, and by virtue of their lifetime appointment status, 
can't see their way clear to weigh in on such an imperative matter, a matter that impacted not only this past election, alienating over 75 million American voters who voted for Trump, but will have unquestionable impact on future elections, as it did in the elections in Georgia for the two vacant Senate seats, which flipped the Senate Democrat. When are they going to step up? What cases are they going to hear? Are they going to be a true Supreme Court? Or are they just there to talk legal theory and have coffee and listen to their hundred cases a year split amongst nine justices who don't even write the opinions themselves but usually defer to their clerks? Are they really that overworked? They can't write 10 opinions a year? I mean, I know that government workers tend to drag their feet, but it's getting a little ridiculous. So I challenge you, Supreme Court members, and I'm not speaking to the slugs like the um, Stephen Breyers, who's been a piece of garbage since the day he's appointed. I'm not speaking to Justice Sotomayor, who quoted about uh, a wise Latina might decide things differently than a white male. I really don't know what the hell that means. Or Justice Elena Kagan, who was never a judge uh, and is another uber leftist appointed by Obama. I'm speaking to the people that conservatives in this country who want to see the Supreme Court act as it should in defense of the Constitution and supported you. I'm talking about Gorsuch. I'm talking about Kavanaugh. I'm talking about Amy Coney Barrett. Judge Kavanaugh, you fulfilled your obligation. You stood there and wanted to hear it, although you didn't want to hear it right after the election. I'm glad to see you're coming around now. What about you, Justice Barrett? What about you, Justice Kavanaugh, whom any other president would have walked away from in response to those allegations, however unfounded? The cacophony that came up was so loud, nobody would have, else would have stood by you. They would have asked you to withdraw your nomination and it would have put somebody else up more easily confirmed. But Trump stood by you. And in the hour when the country needed you, when the Constitution needed you, not Trump, the country and the Constitution, you were MIA and deafeningly silent. And don't think for a second that your silence and the silence of your brethren are not going to cause us all to reevaluate just who we give our support to when they're nominated for the court. No one is above the law. And above all people, you justices on the Supreme Court should know it. For National Preview Online, I'm Jamie Dury.